0: Welcome, everyone. To it's a wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is George Siegel, founder and CEO of MoveTheWorldFilms.org. George has over 35 years of experience in television and film production. He is the director and producer of The Last House Standing, a documentary film about how everyone needs a home that doesn't blow away, wash away, or burn down. His career started in front of the camera as a weather caster, newscaster, and sportscaster. George has covered countless stories about people who lost everything in disasters. He has worked in markets from Los Angeles to San Francisco, Seattle, Detroit, and San Antonio, Texas. In 2001, he formed JEL Productions, a video production company that produces commercials, infomercials, television programs, and documentary films. In 2018, he started Move the World Films, where he wrote, directed, and produced the award-winning documentary film, The Last House Standing, where he explores the fact that most people think catastrophic destruction will never happen to them, And they have no idea if their insurance will actually get them whole again. Welcome, George, to the podcast.
1: Hey, Ron. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate
0: it. My pleasure. I saw the film, George. It was fantastic. It really opens one's eyes to the subject of natural disasters and what we can do to be uh, proactive in protecting ourselves. And I'm encouraging everyone out there to view this documentary. George, please give us uh, a short bio of yourself and what prompted you to transition uh, from broadcasting to film production.
1: Well, you know, when you were saying all the different things that I'd done, eventually the evolution of my career moved me to being behind the camera, mainly because I didn't like a lot of the baloney that went with being in front of the camera. A lot mm-hmm. of the things that you have to do, the way you have to, you're told, you know, what you have to say, how you have to say it, right. stories you can cover. So when I got out of the news business, I decided to start my own production company where you have clients and you have to tell their stories. But eventually that evolved into documentary films where I get to pick a subject. You raise the money to make the film and then you go out and try to make a project that you hope will make a difference in the world. Um, Because of my experience as a, a TV weathercaster and as a reporter... I covered a lot of stories where people every year got ravaged by disasters. And it's heartbreaking to go to those places and talk to people who their house just burned down or blow, it was washed away or they were in a tornado. And there's this look on victims' faces that, that shell-shocked look of they didn't know what hit them.
0: Yeah.
1: And okay. what frustrated me is there are ways that you can lessen the chance of that happening to you. It's not always easy. It's not always a simple fix. Right. But you don't have to end up like that, because when you do, your life is turned completely upside down. And after seeing that story again and again and again, it it just motivated me to want to do something about it.
0: That's great. Tell us uh, what the goal of making the last house standing is. What was the goal?
1: You know, there's a big goal and then there's a secondary goal. The big goal, obviously, is I wanted to change the way people think. And I want people to be aware of where they're buying a house, what the condition of that house is. Are they getting eye candy or are they getting an actual building that's a a home that's gonna survive something? And I bet most people don't know the answer to that question. On a short term, if you can help one person at a time, that's also a terrific thing. If one person goes out and gets something to make their front door stronger so it doesn't blow in during a strong storm or hurricane and, and, and tear their whole house down, That's a huge accomplishment, and I would feel fantastic about that. But overall, the whole thing is really a grassroots movement for everybody at the bottom, and that's us homeowners, to do something. Because if we sit around and worry about them solving climate, the experts solving climate change and global warming and building codes and all that, we're the ones that are going to continue to get screwed every year. So we need to wake up and and change the conversation and demand things, because that's the quickest way to fix it. We can't make them build us better houses unless we demand it. And then when we demand it, they'll start doing it.
0: Right. George, what was your biggest challenge in making the film?
1: Well, there was a couple. One was getting the people to be in it, you know, because we got some people that are that are tough to get a hold of. One, because they're very busy and two, because they don't really don't want to talk to filmmakers. You know, to get the FEMA director, uh, Brock Long, was a challenge because yeah, I saw you know, him
0: in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he was great, a really great guy. And, but FEMA is always getting attacked for what goes wrong after a disaster because it's such chaos from the disaster that they're in a no-win situation. I'm not, you know, I'm not telling you they're always perfect, but they're in a very difficult position. They liked the fact that we weren't coming at them to talk about what they might do better after a storm. We're talking about being proactive and that's one of their big messages is how do we do things on the front side to avoid things happening on the backside. So getting uh, Brock Long was very challenging. And Hank Ovink, who is in the film, um, he's the water ambassador from the Netherlands who uh, President yeah. Obama brought in after Hurricane Sandy to help in New Jersey. And it took over a year and a half to get that guy because wow. he's so busy. Yeah. And I just relentlessly chased him down. And when uh, eventually it came time to, to booking him, I made sure we had him early in the morning because if you watch him work a room, everybody wants to talk to this guy. Yeah, we got him first thing before everybody else did. That was and that
0: was smart. That must yeah, have been a lot. That terrific. must have been a lot of phone calls.
1: I a lot of you. phone calls and a lot of stress because when you're a small team going out to shoot something like that, if it didn't work out, we spend a lot of money trying to make it happen, and you really can't afford those misses. But he was fantastic, so accommodating when we got him, and uh, he was a big part of the film.
0: So what's it like making a documentary film about natural disasters?
1: You know, it's challenging because you have to go talk to people who are victims of disaster, and that's very right. difficult to do. I, I'm not the kind of, uh, when I'm producing, I don't like to intrude on people's grief. So you have to be real considerate of that and real understanding that there may be things they don't want to talk about. They, their schedule may not be as flexible as as we might be because they're trying to get their life back together. And it's a very traumatic thing. We were fortunate to get some great people. All the people in the film were so nice to us and And they were going through a lot, but they still gave their time and their stories to to what we were doing. And, um, you know, it's coordinating everything. It's a lot of work to get all the pieces together because, again, we were a small uh, nucleus, a small team of people. And, um, you know, that means everybody has to do more than what they might do on a bigger set where you might have a guy that does lighting. You might have a craft services truck. You might have a makeup person. You have a, a, a sound person. You know, when you're a smaller crew, you, you double up and do many things on the job.
0: So, why are the building codes uh, so weak around the country, and is it difficult to get them changed to reflect higher standards?
1: Yeah, I think it's very difficult to get the code changed, as we see time and again. Um, that's a slow process because builders have an entire industry to lobby. They have lobbyists to right. lobby to keep the codes from being stronger and. If you talk to a builder, what they say makes pretty good sense. I mean, you're just having a conversation about it, is you can make the code so tough and the house is so expensive, people might not buy them. But when you see the disaster end of it, I think people would. I think it's like cars cost more when they were safer, when you had to put airbags in them, when you had to make them so they could actually save somebody's life. We need people to demand that of a house. But the builders, their goal is to keep the code from being... Uh, made stronger I love it when I find a builder that doesn't build the code they build above code they build to stand withstand the hazards that could actually happen in that area and and probably the best example is Mexico Beach um, in Florida where we featured um, the house that truly was one of the last houses standing right there on the beach and they did a lot to to make sure that house survived not everybody can do that but if you're going to have a house on the beach maybe that's something that you need to do because every house around it was destroyed completely. Um, When they changed the building code after Hurricane Michael, they raised the wind code from 130 miles an hour to 140 miles an hour. That's less than the storm that wiped them out. You know, I think they had, what what good is that?
0: 10 miles an hour. That's not going to do anything.
1: It'll do something on a a category two, maybe a category three, but you get a four or five, it's not going to be enough. So to me, that's an example of they should have adopted the South Florida, uh, building codes where it's 175 miles an hour. And, you know, it increases your chances of surviving of your house still being there after the, the storm blows through. And, it, you know, I, you have to bite the bullet and do it. And, and who keeps paying for the fact that we don't? You know, our insurance rates go up. Uh, right. And uh, supplies go down because you have to use them to rebuild property and all the delays and, and problems that's caused by loss of work. Schools closing. I mean, it's completely disruptive of everybody's life. So I think we need to do a much better job, but it's a it's a very slow go. Well,
0: after I saw the movie, uh, I, I thought to myself all the times I hear people say, "Oh, we're building up to code," you know. It, it now now it's like after people see this documentary and they hear those words, they're going to say, "No, we want it above
1: code." You know, part of the problem is. Um, the, the real estate market in some areas is so hot right now that if you find a house that they're just doing the average build, and there's a lot of mediocre houses around where we live, where they put wood on the second floor, and you know they're saving money wherever they can, Yeah. if you don't want that house, somebody else is going to take it, yeah. so it's not like you have a lot of options, and if the market was the other way around where you could put your foot down and say, no, nah, I'm not buying it unless you make it better then you'd have a chance. But the problem is if you say that the next guy is not going to do that and then he's going to get the house or she's going to get the house and kind of your protest goes right out the window. But it would be nice if 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 things like Zillow and Realtor.com, if they rewarded on their houses that are better built yeah. so rather than show that it's near a park or it's got a nice backyard for the kids to play in, it said it's got hurricane strength, uh, hurricane brackets all around the house. It's got uh, double pane hurricane windows to withstand 175 miles. you don't usually see those things in, it, in, in any ads
0: you no. see all
1: the eye candy in the yeah. and you know I think the line in the film that we use is people care more about the icing on the cake than the ingredients of what's in the cake and it's really, almost like a
0: it's like a car right yeah some people just like the outside of the car exactly you know, the the and, hood. And,
1: and, and you know you can't go to a, uh, a car manufacturer and say you know I'd like that Volvo but I don't want the airbags. Could you knock off uh, $750? Yeah. Could you take right. the crash resistant doors out? No, the, the code changed on those. The standard changed where you had to raise your game. Unfortunately, that's what it might take. But if we can get enough people to put their foot down and demand better, who knows?
0: Well, I guess I'll lead that leads us to my next question, which you kind of answered. Why do people have so little information or so blind about the homes they buy and move into?
1: Stupid. You want the harsh answer or the, the probably the diplomatic I, I don't answer. want
0: the hard answer.
1: I think we're stupid and lazy. And I say okay. we collectively because yeah. I'm in that group too. You know, I've just gotten better at it lately because now that I have a film about this, it's like, how stupid would I look if I didn't have a lot of the things that I'm advocating for other people. So I've inventoried my possessions. I make sure I have the right insurance. I know my house is built to withstand a lot of those hazards and you know, most people don't worry about it. You know, we've already this year in Florida had a couple scares with potential yeah. hurricanes. Yeah. And and they missed. They weren't even close. And so, what does that happen? You, you think one hand you could go, wow, this is a wake up call. I don't think that's what happened. I think people go, see, it's not going to happen to us. We're good. And I, you just yeah. go about your business.
0: Yeah. I can remember about three years ago, three or four years ago, being a Floridian like you, we had, I think we had to evacuate like twice. And so we're right here on the beach and we had to get off. And again, uh, nothing happened. So yeah.
1: And it's tougher to get you to go the second time because after you've done it the first time, yeah. you're going, well, this is ridiculous. They're just being overly cautious and, yeah. you know, we, there's no reason to leave. And then you probably that's when you get a storm surge or a storm that parks right over you and right. you can get you can lose your life. It's, it's oh, yeah. serious. So. You have to almost
0: I want to take a moment to tell you about an inspiring book written by one of our guests, Kim Kid Curry, former South Florida DJ legend and radio executive. The title of the book is Come Get Me Mother I'm Through. I started reading the book and couldn't put it down. The moment Kim Curry stepped into a radio station in high school, he knew he was destined to work in the industry. At the height of popularity for radio stations and DJs in the 70s and 80s, Curry blazed a trail for himself as Kid Curry. His iconic bed check segment helped propel him to star status in Miami and it followed him during his over 20-year path to the dream job of major market program director. The perks of the job, including hanging out with music legends, being invited to the White House, meeting Johnny Unitas, and a Watergate burglar, traveling around the world to find the next number one song, and the best part, helping listeners in need. Life was on track, but multiple sclerosis had other plans. Curry dismissed the early signs of the disease and continued with his optimistic outlook until a fateful round of golf led to the diagnosis that halted a lifelong career and extinguished his dreams. But attitude is everything. With the love and support of his incredible Cuban wife and her assurance of we got this poppy, Curry embraced this new challenge and shows us that life can be good even in the face of adversity. This is a story of spirit, drive, and never giving up. This is a story to inspire us when we fall down eight times to get up nine times. Available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in paperback and e-version. The information for the book will be listed in the podcast notes.
1: Consider that the cost of living in paradise is if they tell you to evacuate, that's probably what you need to do unless you live in a house you know can withstand it. Right. um, You know, you you need to listen to the experts. I just wish the experts would put more effort into proactively making things better and safer rather than having a better rescue plan or a better rebuilding plan. Let's, Let's stop that from having to happen all the time.
0: Right. Well, hopefully, somebody out there in that position will be listening to this podcast. Let's hope. You hope there, there's got to be some
1: brave pioneer out there that says enough. I'm going to lead yeah. the. I'm going to lead the charge. And then there was a lot of places that are. Florida's gotten a lot better. I think yeah. we we're one of the top places in the country in, in increasing our building codes yeah. and doing a better job. I know Alabama's improved in some areas. Uh, Texas has, but it's going to take a, a a really big effort by a lot of people to start building more concrete houses, uh, make better choices where you live maybe being out in the middle of the woods with no way out and trees all around your house. Isn't the best idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is there anything uh, that disaster victims have in common with each other?
1: I I think one commonality is there's something they could have done to improve their chances of ending up in that disaster. If you look at all the people in our film um, you know, the people in Malibu whose houses burned down and, and then we talked about people in paradise, Sometimes you're just in the wrong place and a bad thing happens. Well, then hopefully you had the right insurance for your house. Hopefully your valuables were insured properly. Hopefully you got out important records and things that would make your road to recovery easier than it might be if you, if you didn't do that. Uh, people that live in, in tornado areas, hopefully they have a storm cellar. Those really aren't that expensive. And when you factor into the cost of, of what your house is, and I don't know how anybody could live in a tornado alley and not have a storm cellar. Yeah, I don't I think know they either. Don't, I think it's like thirty or thirty-five percent. It's a very small number. Wow! Um, you know, and 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 that's crazy to me because that, that those are so frightening. More Oklahoma, four major tornadoes hit them before they changed their building code, and even after the fourth one, they didn't see a huge increase in storm cellar sales. And they you can get low financing for that. Um, and then people that were damaged by Hurricane Michael. Um, A lot of them just had houses that weren't built to withstand that. There were older homes that, you know, they didn't account for that back then. The code was much worse than it is now.
0: George, can you talk about what you call resilient building? And is it prohibitively expensive? And I know in the film, it was mentioned that uh, Habitat for Humanity has higher standards and they build homes for around $100,000.
1: It's amazing what they do and and the detail that they put into it. You know, they talk about the extra nails they put in, the type of roof that's low wind resistance that they put in. They're starting to do more metal roofs. They're starting to actually get into some concrete houses in some areas. But the way they bracket the walls to the foundation and the roof to the walls, their houses hold up really well when there is a, a disaster. And historically, you don't usually hear about those houses getting wiped out. It's a a lot of times it's the older homes or the really nice homes that are right on the beach that get leveled, And um, so it's the detail that can go into it. Resilient building. You know, we also talk about green building. If you have to build it twice, it's not green. You know, if you build a house that gets torn down and you've got to use all those resources to build it back, you're actually doing the environment a greater disservice than you did building it the first time. So you have to think about all those things and say, what is the way, the best way to build this house? that will give me the best chance of it surviving. Sometimes it's little things. You know, We have uh, some friends here in, in Tampa that when we went over to their house the first time, their front door opened out. And we were making fun of them going, this is so stupid. Who wants a front door that opens out? It's so yeah. unwelcoming. You're opening it into somebody's face. And then as I got into doing our film, I saw well, that's a, probably the smartest front door you can have. Because that door is not blowing in, in a hurricane. Because that, you know, it's it, 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 the- okay. It's more wind resistant than a door that can just be pushed in. If the door opens out, the whole tension that, that's on that door when the wind is strong is dramatically different. So I, I called those guys and apologized for making fun of them <laughs> <laughs> because, because I did. And, and it's, it's little things like that. It's having a door, your front door blowing in can destroy your house. It's having a garage that can withstand strong winds, um, but having the right windows in your house. There's so many things that people can do. We just have to motivate them to be to be paying attention and do them. And, and sure, it costs more, but the cost of not doing it is far greater. If Let's just use an, a number of a house. Say you were building a $200,000 house, and they said, you know, but for $220,000, right, you can maybe put up a house that will actually stick around. Yeah, That sounds like a lot of money, and for a lot of people, it is. But take that $20,000, factor it in over a, a, a 30-year mortgage, and then factor in all the intangibles that are going to completely uproot your life when your house is destroyed, losing everything, potentially losing your job, God forbid, losing your life if you were still in the house. Right. When you add up all those things, that 20,000 is not looking so bad anymore.
0: No, it's a no brainer. It really is. Yeah,
1: but you gotta be sensitive to the point that, you know, if you're strapped for money and you're squeezing into a house that you can't afford, you tend to ignore things like that because you really wanna get into the housing market. And there's a price to pay for that because it's also your biggest investment. And if you're going to put that much money into something, it's a good idea to make sure that it has a chance of surviving.
0: George, is it possible to prepare for all disasters?
1: I think that uh, as our expert, Roy Wright, says it in our film, that um, if an EF-5 tornado is, hits your house directly, there's probably not anything you can do. Right. But then in part of that preparation, you had a storm cellar. So you survived that. So there's always some little thing you could do. If you're living in an area where you have an older home, you make sure you have flood insurance. Even if you don't live in a flood area, if you don't live in a flood zone, uh, flood insurance is not expensive. It's only expensive if you have a sea level house a block from the beach. And this, this, this uh, rating for that is nine feet. Insurance company is going to charge you a fortune for that. But the people in Houston from um, the, uh, the hurricane that, that hit them they didn't, a lot of those people that were damaged didn't live in a flood area. No. They lived in an area that, unfortunately, they had to release a reservoir that yeah. ended up flooding their homes. And they could have had purchased flood insurance that we were told for $300 that could have made the difference between them getting whole again or not after their house was flooded. So there's always something, whether it's inventorying your property, you know, if you don't have a record of everything that you have in some fashion, how's the insurance company going to believe you? Right they're not. Right. You know, they there's we heard a statistic, I heard a statistic from a guy that said 60 or 70% of claims are denied the first time you make them after a disaster. I don't wow. I haven't researched that to know if it's true, but I've heard that in other areas of insurance because a certain percentage of people are going to just figure they're screwed and they're just going to move on rather than fight it. And so if that's going to happen, the people that are going to get paid are the ones that can present a case to show that they actually had those things.
0: Right. You need to document what you have.
1: Yeah. So I mean, the most, important or part of, or whatever. Yeah, the most important part of insurance to us is that the company actually is going to give us back our money and then some. Yeah. But they don't like to just do that. They're not going to make it easy for you.
0: They like to get those premiums, though.
1: They do. They love to get those premiums. And it makes me sick when you hear of insurance companies making money in a year when there's been major disasters because, you, you know, they overcharged somebody or they didn't pay out. Everything that everybody else is, ha, had lost in that disaster, and you know that's the reality of it. Is you want to do everything you can to improve your chances of being made whole after a disaster. They're not going to take your word for it. You can walk around your house with a cell phone and just take pictures of everything, sure. or video. Have a video. Yeah. Um, do something to substantiate your case. And if they do reject you, you want to make sure that uh, you, you know that you appeal. Don't just accept that on face value. Also, after a disaster, it brings out the, the best in people, the first responders, the people that come to help you right after a disaster. But then that layer of cockroaches in lower parts of society come preying on people where they'll charge you $20,000 to put a tarp on your roof. yeah. Or they'll come in and you assign your benefits over to them. So they now control your insurance money. And then they take forever to do the job, if ever. You know, We had a guy taking us around in uh, Mexico Beach, who I understand is in jail now because uh, of people he took advantage of uh-huh. uh, in, in that situation. And so it's, it's, it's horrible that you're a victim and then you're made a victim again. Because yeah. when, you're, when you're in that mode where you've just had a major disaster, any white knight driving by is gonna make, look like your savior. But a lot of them are there to, to take advantage of you.
0: You know, you made a very good point for the people out there in the audience. If you're not in a flood zone, get flood insurance. It's cheap and you never know. And I hear so many people that I know in Florida that don't live in floodplains, don't have flood insurance. They just don't buy it.
1: No, and Brock Long said in our film, he goes, if it rains where you live, your house can flood. Yeah. And that's a pretty, uh, pretty direct comment that yeah. really says what, what's sure. true. And if you need to have those kind of things. And then if you have a year or two where you don't have a disaster, don't be one of those people that gets mad and goes, God, I can't believe I wasted money on that insurance the last couple of years. I'm not going to get it this year because Mother Nature has a way of finding us.
0: I can, re- the- oh, I can remember a few years back, we had a hurricane in Florida and they got flooded all the way up into Georgia, like into middle Georgia, if you can remember that. Just, and they were never in a floodplain.
1: Absolutely. And then, you know, you, in our film, you remember the older gentleman, uh, Mr. Corman in Malibu who took the insurance off his collector cars because they weren't running or his coins that he had his coin collection. um, And those things melted in the storm, the car engine melted. And he just took the insurance off because he wasn't using it. Little things like that. People who live out in a remote area might have their house way underinsured because they don't have a mortgage. It's been in their family for years. You need to get as much insurance as you can you know, obviously, they're not going to give you what it might cost to rebuild it unless you have that clause in your policy that says they have to rebuild it to today's standards. Right. Read your policy. Most people have never even read their insurance policy. There, there's a reason it's 60 pages with little print. Yeah. You know, so if you if you don't feel like you're up to it, I ask my insurance agent. He probably is sick of me for all the questions that I've asked. But you know, you got to ask him.
0: It's a good point. George, what are some of the safest and most dangerous places to live in America? Disaster speaking, of course.
1: Wow, there's there's a lot of them. You know, to me, the scariest place to live in the country, I grew up there, is California because it's earthquakes, it's mudslides, it's fires. Uh, The fires the last several years have just been horrific out there. So I would say California has a major weather bullseye. And then anywhere along the Gulf Coast, is a potential target from down in the Keys all the way up the East Coast, because we've seen what's happened in New Jersey before. We've seen what can happen in the Carolinas. We see what can happen in Texas. Uh, from Harvey, we see along the Gulf Coast. Last year, Louisiana got hit by four hurricanes. Um, right. So I, And then the, the Central Plains with tornadoes, Tornado Alley. Um, you No matter where you live, you can usually find a vulnerability. And if there's no vulnerability, there might be something about it that might make you not want to live there. I know a lot of people live in the desert where maybe they have a monsoon every now and then or a dust storm. Other than that, it's pretty quiet, but it's freaking hot a lot of the year. Yeah. And you <laughs> have to enjoy the desert. I like the desert, but I don't know that I, I would want to live there. So the nicer the place, sometimes the bigger the boils.
0: What about the safest? Any, any, is there any place out there?
1: <laughs> you know, a place I lived a lot of years, San Antonio, Texas. Yeah. Um, because it's far enough away from the coast. And you kind of know what the bad areas are by the hundred-year flood plain. You know, if you didn't live, don't live anywhere near a creek or a river. There's places you could live there and be safe for years. You know, there's probably places in Montana and and uh, the Dakotas. But then you have all that snow and cold weather. I don't well, know I I,
0: know. I was just in I was just in Rapid City, South Dakota, and they did have a major flood there a while back.
1: Yeah, they can definitely get flooding. So I don't know if there's a, an area that's perfect. I know that we went a long time without any problems in San Antonio, but we also had big storms there where creeks flooded and people two miles from the creek had their house flooded. Right. So you know, you really have to know the area. On our website, uh, there's a FEMA map on there that you can see that you put in your address and it shows you what the risk is in your neighborhood and what the rating is. And everybody should look at that. And, if it, and, and, and don't just look at your area. Look uphill from you or downhill, you know, upstream, downstream. See what the other places around you, what their risks are, because it can end up being your problems. They build a dam somewhere or divert water somewhere like they did from Harvey. And all those poor people in Houston just were destroyed by that.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Look around what's what's around you. Yeah, Definitely. that can
1: that can end up happening, being a problem for you.
0: What should everybody be doing now to make sure their home is safe. Where where does one start the process?
1: I think the first thing, if you're looking at a neighborhood, is to talk to neighbors, talk to people that have lived there for a while, and find out. When we first moved to Tampa, we were looking at houses, and we were looking at this one house, and a guy was walking by, and I said, hey, tell me what the street's like when it rains. And he goes, the water goes right up to the front door of that house every time it rains. We didn't even go in. (laughs) Thank you and you can get a lot of information by talking to neighbors go look at that fema map of your of your neighborhood and you know we can google anything now anywhere we live see what yeah. the historic uh, history what the history is of that area because the more information you have the, the more you can put into your choice i mean nobody really goes and analyzes the building code but you can still read about you know you can google those things and, and if you google tampa I mean, a lot of people move here, but if you Google it, I don't know that you would, because we're one of the top, we're one or two in the most vulnerable places to next get hit by a major disaster. So you're kind of rolling the dice when you move here to begin with.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, The film referred to a thermal camera that could be used with an iPhone or through an iPhone. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, Joel May, who uh, is with BASF. Um, showed us with his iPhone, there's a little thermal camera that you plug into it. And you can walk around and you hold it on your walls and it shows you where there could be moisture in the walls um, or where there could be vulnerabilities as you go around your house. Um, and he d- displayed that in the film where he, he could see that the camera changed colors in the corner and he knew that was the, where there was an air conditioning duct. But if there hadn't been a duct there, then that would have been an area that you would have had to be concerned about because something was going on behind that wall and an inspector that takes that around and looks can, can have a very valuable tool. If you're going to get one, you know, you you, you need to do your research and, and try to get one that, you know, sometimes the cheapest one isn't the best one. Um, do review, read the reviews and see what people say, or make sure when you're hiring a home inspector that they have one and that they'll go around and do it because it's a lot easier to deal with those problems before you sign the contract um, than once you take possession of the house and you find out that. You could be sitting on the sofa and it's windy outside and your hair is going to move.
0: So the thermal camera is just a separate thing. It's not nothing to do with the
1: iPhone. Then. It hooks up. It can be it can run oh. off the iPhone oh, plugged yeah. into it. So oh, that's okay. what's cool about it. Oh. That iPhone, you, just, you can make a movie on an iPhone now. There's so many yeah. things do And that's a pretty good app for it.
0: OK. Uh, if it's not possible to make our home safer. What 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 should we do?
1: Well, in this hot real estate market, I'd sell it, <laughs> Go move somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. You know, you make it somebody else's problem, and see if they do their research. I mean, ideally, there are things you could do. You know, you could get in there, and you know, you could put this foam in your attic that makes the envelope of the house tighter and, and can protect your roof if water tried to get in. It's a spray foam that they put in the attics. Um, you could have somebody, you know, put hurricane brackets. It's, it's a little intrusive in terms of what they have to cut away to, to do that, to make sure your walls are bracketed on properly, change the windows in your house um, to make it safer. Um, and, and if you're in an area you you, know, you see this, they did it a lot in Houston, it's not inexpensive where people jack up their houses and raise the, the elevation of it. Um, I don't know, I mean, that can, be, that can be a costly fix to do, but in, it could make the difference. They did that at a lot of houses in Houston where um, they they jack them up and then they rebuild the foundation around it, so that house doesn't keep getting washed, uh, getting hit by flooding.
0: Did you follow up on the people who were featured in the film, and how were most of them doing?
1: Most of them are doing pretty well. Um, they a bunch of them had their houses are rebuilt now. I know it takes time in California. There's um, there was a rule in Malibu that unless you were building the exact same footprint that was on the lot originally, you had to go through a whole permitting process all over again. And it took a long time. So it's not always a slam dunk that you can just go rebuild your house. Um, But, you know, you're still talking. That was a few years ago that we interviewed them. So that's a long process back to recovery. You know, the house is coming back in Mexico beach, um, but it's going to be several more years before you would, probably think it was completely back to normal.
0: What are some of the stories you found making the film that were the most memorable for you?
1: Um, I would say uh, the 91 year old gentleman, uh, Richard Corman, who had such a good attitude about rebuilding at 91 years old. I mean, I would probably just crawl into a corner and cry. Yeah. And he just had that pioneer spirit that he wasn't going to let anything get him down and that was that was very inspirational. Um the uh uh the Caridines, the other family that we interviewed in Malibu. Um I mean they lost a lot. They had a lot of family heirlooms and things that just meant so much to them and they were in a position where you know no matter what your means are when you lose everything that you have immediately people think well if you're not you know if if you have the ability to get it back, but there's some things you can never get back. You don't right. get back things passed down from your family for years. You don't no. get back things your grandfather might've wanted the family to have or your great grandfather. Right. So they all, everybody had a good attitude, although they were certainly scarred by thinking they sh- it shouldn't have happened. That, you know, that whole thing in Malibu because their fire department was called to another area to fight the fire. The next firefighters that came in to their to Malibu didn't know the area, so they weren't even sent into some streets to to put the fire out. Yeah, and they yeah. made the uh, statement that we have to let this one go. They were making choices of what they could fight and what they could not fight. And you can understand that possibly from their perspective. I'm sure firefighters want to fight fires. There, I'm sure they were very frustrated by it. But imagine if that was your house, and they said, "Now nah, we got we can't get to that one." Right, right. Like, that doesn't mean anything to you
0: right Get it's here. your house yeah Get in my house safe. yeah what did you learn in making the film
1: that i never want to be in that position i never want to end up having to rely on fema coming in and then the insurance companies coming in and then you know getting a temporary patch on whatever your damage is and salvaging what you can I mean, I had a small taste of that when I lived in Michigan, our, our basement flooded, we had sump pumps, I don't, a lot of people aren't familiar with that, but it just keeps water out of your house, Right, and, and keeps it flowing around the house, and that just went out, there was a power outage, and that sump pump went out, and we had a foot of water in the basement, but a foot of water goes three or four feet up in your walls, Yeah, you store things in your basement that you just, you like them, but you don't you have them, so you have them in boxes, All my old tapes from broadcasting were ruined. The kids' toys were ruined. And then you have to deal with the companies that claim they come out and clean them. And nobody's going to clean your stuff to your satisfaction. I don't care how great they say they are. It was a horrible experience. We were fortunate that that was all. Nothing upstairs was damaged. But that was just a small taste of it. So what I learned is I, I don't want to be in that position. I want to do everything I can to avoid that.
0: And we hope everybody out there listening to this does the same thing. You made a documentary titled License to Parent. Uh, would you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's uh, the. I think parenting is the most difficult job in the world, and we let anybody do it. You know, if you can reproduce, you can, uh, you can have a child.
0: No license required.
1: And n- no requirements whatsoever. The only thing you're going to get grilled on is when you're leaving the hospital, they may come out and make sure the car seat is attached properly. <laughs> yeah. And that may that's important. Let's not minimize that, but that's the least of your problems that you have facing you, right. taking on that job of being a parent. And I just think that we we, you know, we're way underprepared as parents, we're way under-supported in terms of community support, emotional support, and bad parenting costs society a tremendous amount of money. Because when you have a good kid, they're worth a certain amount to society. But if you have a bad kid, society pays for it. You know, everybody can bang their chest and say they have individual rights and freedoms. That's great. If you live in a bubble, But once your freedoms start tearing up the town um, it's a different story. And so uh, I was hoping to create a conversation where people would say, yep, this is an important job. Let's support parents more. Let's do more to help them. You know, it could be as little as when you see that kid screaming in the supermarket, You're not giving the evil eye to the mom, like she's ruining your shopping experience. Maybe a smile and a sympathetic comment, you know, just a pat on the back, something to not make them feel any worse about a situation that's probably pretty bad for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are times when you see parents that just don't care what their their kids are doing. They'll let them race around the restaurant, run around the airplane, cruise the mall and do whatever damage they want. That drives me crazy.
0: Yeah, well, it drives all of us crazy for sure. What, what do you have planned for your next documentary? And uh, what are you most excited about going forward?
1: Well, you know, possibly some um, further uh, development of the idea about The Last House Standing and, and what it's like for people trying to get their feet back on the ground uh, maybe a little more in detail, and then some other stuff I can't really talk about right now that uh, okay. that I'm working on. But you know, when you finish one, and then you go to the next one, you have that you're it's like you're looking up a mountain, and you're going to see all that you have to do to make it happen. Right. So I'm juggling a lot of balls, trying to figure out which project will go next, and uh, hopefully we'll jump on it.
0: Well, when you when you finish your next project, maybe you can come back and tell us about it.
1: That would be awesome. I would That's sure great. appreciate that. We want to make sure that everybody that. Uh, that listens to you goes to thelasthousestanding.org. Yeah, Um, that's my
0: next question. How can people access your film and can they contact you if they wanna talk to you?
1: Absolutely, there's contact on the page on thelasthousestanding.org. If you're having an event or something and you wanna have a film screening at it, we can make that happen for you. But you can rent the film right on our website. And Mm -hmm. also it's starting to appear on uh, certain public television stations slowly around the country. And I've just been informed that we're on Tubi now, which is a, oh. a service that people can watch movies for free. Yeah. Um, and it's on there. And so is licensed to parent. And I just encourage people to check it out. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the film. Um, a lot of work went into it, um, but I think it can make a difference for people. You know, you look at when you're a producer director, you you do a lot of different projects and, and some you're happy with some you're not. This one, I I really think matters and and can make a big difference for people. So I hope they visit the website. We also have a great resources page on there where they can um, see a lot of different things they can do to make their house safer. And so it's a lot of good information. And if they have any questions, my contact's on there and I hope they reach out to me.
0: Well, I'm gonna include all that information in the podcast notes, and we are going to uh, be putting uh, the documentary on our Facebook page. So awesome. people will see it that come to, come to my Facebook page. Thank you so much, George, for spending time with us. And, and I wish you all the best in, in your future work. Uh, we welcome all comments and suggestions to improve the podcast. You can email me at it's a wrap with wrap at gmail.com. Facebook. It's a wrap with wrap. The website is it's a wrap with rap.com. Thanks everyone for listening and making the podcast grow in listenership. We appreciate all of you that share these podcasts who Your friends and family want everybody to please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.